before we get into Christmas. And I want to talk to you about how to survive the holiday season. I am convinced, having watched over and over again, not only in my own life, but in the lives of many people, Christian people, uh, that the holidays, if the truth be told, people kind of, they say, oh boy, hold your breath and fasten your seatbelts because here comes the holidays. And if you really are honest, many of us are honest, it can be the most stressful time of the year. Number one, the holidays cost a lot of money, a lot, and that can add stress on a home. Oh, we got to work extra hours because we got to buy all this stuff. We have to buy food. We have to buy presents. We have to do all these things, all these big events, la, la, la. It costs a whole bunch of money, and that stresses people, but also they're going to be with other people in the holidays, and you're going to be with other family. And if things aren't going good, you're in close proximity with one another. You're around a dinner table like that, and you see the looks on some of the people's faces. It's not exactly peace and harmony. There is conflict that you see at that table. I believe that is a screenshot from a Saturday Night Live episode, actually. Uh, and you see it's not, there's, there's friction going on there. Because we live all year with these tensions in relationships, but then when we bring people together for something like the holidays, you're going to get an explosion. Things are going to pop because you're stuck together, right? And sometimes you go to office parties, Christmas parties, you know, you get to be with this person who you dislike, and it can, it can cause a lot, a lot of stress. Uh, sometimes in the church world, the church usually has these huge, huge events, Christmas pageants and whatnot, and it, again, it stresses people. Uh, I grew up not celebrating Christmas at all. Um, you need to know uh, uh, that Christmas, the, the, annual, the annual celebration of the birth of Jesus is not biblical, just saying. You will not find the annual celebration of Jesus in the Bible at all. Nobody celebrated the birth of Jesus until the mid-4th century when the pagan emperor Constantine allegedly became a Christian. He took the Roman Saturnalia and kind of mishmashed it with the birth of Jesus. And it has kind of a messy origin, this, the annual celebration of the birth of Jesus. All that said, it can be a wonderful thing, uh, but it, you, don't, you won't find a command in the Bible, thou shalt celebrate Christmas every December the 25th. Okay, you will not find this anywhere in the Bible. If they celebrated anything annually or in a repetitive sense, it was the, re the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Uh, Passover came to be understood that way. And also, uh, any time that the Christians would meet, they were basically acknowledging the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But curiously enough, never his birth. Uh, just saying. So I grew up not celebrating Christmas at all from a Jewish background. Didn't celebrate Christmas until I was 20 years old. So it's like, wow, this is a big thing. Wow, wow, it's a lot of stuff you have to do. And so it can add stress. It can add stress. So I want to talk to you about how to survive that stress over the next three weeks. Uh, and I call it how to survive the holidays, all right? Uh, if you're going to memorize one passage of Scripture, if you're going to have one, one thing that you learn over the next three weeks, I don't care if you forget everything else, 
But if there's one thing that you're going to learn, put it on the, the screen, the, the, this verse of Scripture, okay? Uh, be kind and compassionate to one another. In your relationships with people, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. You want to survive the holiday season? If you can live by that little phrase, I don't care if you take a picture of it on your phone, you write it down, write down the verse, do, memorize this passage of Scripture. Now, uh, being kind and compassionate to one another, we usually can swallow. Say, all right, I can be kind. I can even be compassionate to somebody else. But forgiving each other. Now, this is a letter. This is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I'll give you background in a second. It doesn't really relate to today, but I'll give you some background. He says, forgiving each other. He's writing to Christian people. So implicit in this is that Christians sin against one another. They sin against one another. He's not saying this as a potential that will happen. He's saying it is normative that you need to forgive one another in, even in the church setting, even in the community of faith, forgiving each other. Why? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. So because you have been forgiven by God, you need to show that to people on a, on a normal basis. This is the way that a Christ follower is supposed to live. And this is not easy to do. I have seen Christians do the most vicious things to one another. Yes, I've been in the room where, you know, the conversation was had, well, the person can't be a Christian if they behave that way. That they're not a Christian. It's impossible if they behave that way. Well, I've seen Christians do some of the most vicious things uh, to non-Christian people, but even to themselves. Uh, and I've been part of some, some pretty interesting scenarios over the years where, wow, you just look and your eyes get big and you see a passage like this. That's why we need to be about the business of forgiving each other. So uh, just as in Christ, God forgave you. You extend it to somebody else because you've received it. And by the way, we didn't deserve the forgiveness of God. Neither does the person who we forgive, all right? Uh, so that's how to survive the holidays. I'm going to break this down in three different stories, the first of which we'll get into today. It's the story of a runaway slave, and this is the book of Philemon, a tiny, tiny little book tucked into the New Testament, an amazing book, a strange and bizarre book because of the conditions of it, uh, but this is the story of a runaway slave. And you'll find it in the book of Philemon. It's one of those super short books in the Bible. It doesn't even have any chapters because it's only one chapter, and it's got 25 verses in it. So if you, if you despise reading the Bible, but you feel guilty that you don't read it, read the book of Philemon, okay? It'll get you at least started as one page, all right? You can read one page, and it could transform your life. This is the story of a runaway slave. Philemon is not the runaway slave. He's the guy who owns the slave. And this is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul. He's in jail. He's in prison in Rome, which you'll see the little circle on the left side there. Do you see Rome? 
It's, it's still there, by the way. You can, you can visit Rome if you want to. It's still right there where it says on the map. So Paul is in Rome in prison. Uh, you'll see this in the, in the book of Acts, how he got there. This is Acts, the very, very end of it. He ends up in Rome. This wouldn't be his first imprisonment, uh, but it's a significant one because he wrote four letters from Rome. And he wrote them to the Philippians, which you see up in the center there where it says Philippi. You can see Greece and you head north a little bit. And that's the city of Philippi. We did a whole series on that in this church. That's one of the letters he wrote from prison. He wrote a letter to the Ephesians that you see the next circle over there. Uh, and that's where we got this quote. All right, this is another, another letter that he wrote from prison. And he wrote a letter to the Colossians, which you see in the third circle there. You don't have to see the word. Uh, but those are the letters that he wrote. And he also wrote Philemon. Uh, the, uh, the, these letters to the Philippians and the Ephesians and the Colossians, these are all to churches. Uh, but Paul writes one letter to this one guy. His name is Philemon. And uh, Philemon is in the city of Colossae, which you see in the circle on the far right there. Philemon is there, and Paul has a very specific request that he's going to make of this man who is a slave owner. You say, how can he be a Christian and be a slave owner? Just This is the most controversial part of the book of Philemon. Uh, back in the Roman time, in the Roman world, slavery was extremely common. You had several different classes of society back then, and the slaves were the most common. In fact, Jesus himself is referred to as a slave. Uh, in the book of Philippians, which Paul wrote from jail, he talks about how Jesus became a man taking on the very nature of a servant in Philippians 2. The word there for servant is really the word slave. It was a very common designation back then. It meant you were owned by somebody else, but slavery, you, you, you lived in the master's house. You were, in a sense, like an employee of the master, but he owned you. And he owned you for life. Uh, we do see slaves get prominent positions in society sometimes. They'd be teachers, even lawyers, but they were still slaves. Uh, it's not the same, however, as slavery in the modern world. You think of something like the transcontinental slave trade, uh, which Christianity basically brought down, where they were trading uh, Africans for sugar uh, across the British Empire. And a fellow by the name of William Wilberforce and a number of the reformers, the Christian reformers, fought tirelessly to bring down the transcontinental slave trade in the British Parliament and ultimately did. Amazing movie that you can watch about that called Amazing Grace, uh, which is the story of William Wilberforce, a Christian guy. A slavery back in the Roman world wasn't the same thing exactly. It, it was more like... Uh, it, it was a common practice. It was almost like a, an employee and employer relationship to a degree. But you were still owned by somebody else. Uh, it is frowned on in the New Testament. Paul will say even in this letter, he addresses it. He addresses it in a negative sense. But Philemon was a Christian slave owner. And Paul has a very specific request uh, uh, that he's going to write to Philemon, and I want you to take a look at it in Philemon. We're going we're gonna to peek at the whole book. It's only 25 verses long, 
Super, super easy. Think of it as a long text message or a long email. It's not even a long email, okay? It's a short email. So here's how it goes, and I want you to pick up the story. So Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. He refers to himself as a prisoner because he's in Rome. And this is interesting because he usually calls himself an apostle in his letters, but here he's calling himself a prisoner. To Philemon, this is the man who it's addressed to primarily, our dear friend, our fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Uh, these are people who are also named in the book of Colossians. So we know the Philemon's from that city of Colossae. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Standard greeting from Paul. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear about your faith. I hear about it. In the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I pray that you may be active. I love this part. I pray you may be active in sharing your faith. I would echo this man's prayer so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Are you active in sharing your faith? It's an aside, but good question. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Clearly, this man Philemon is a believer, and you'll see in the letter he has become a believer because of the influence of the Apostle Paul. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold, and I could order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love, he says. I then, as Paul, an old man, and a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. This is the slave. You can, you can back up a little bit. You're going too fast. Just okay, back up. Keep it there. We'll get to the, the points in a minute. Uh, I appeal to you on the basis of love for my son, Onesimus. This is the slave who has run away. I appeal to you for Onesimus who became my son, while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful uh, both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you, and I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor, we're almost done, any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that so you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done anything wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. He throws this on in his email. Uh, prepare a guest room for me. 
because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends his greetings, as does Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Congratulations, you just read a book in the Bible. How did it feel? Not so painful, was it? So here's what's going on. This slave, Onesimus, has run away from his master, Philemon, and he's probably stolen something. And he ends up in Rome where he comes to Christ under the influence of the Apostle Paul. Under Roman law, if you stole from your master and you ran away, it was a death penalty for you. So Paul is saying, this guy, Onesimus, I'm sending him back to you. But there's a change that has taken place in his life and in your life, Philemon, and you need to remember these things because I'm sending him back to you. And there are several things that we can learn about how to survive the holidays and how to have correct relationships with people. This is in a Christian context, but these things are going to work even if you're behaving with a non-Christian person. They'll be shocked if you behave this way with them. Uh, observation number one, lesson number one for you. In the community of faith, because these people are all part of it, we do relationships differently. I am hesitant to use the word church because when I use the word church, people think of a building with a cross on it. They think of, a, of professionally paid clergy. They think of policies and rules and regulations. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and you can be part of the church. This is not what the word means. Uh, I've often talked about that word and its origins. The, the, the word that's used in the New Testament is a word that meant a gathering or a community or a meeting. We have translated that into the word church, and we do that for various reasons that have to do with, you know, the idea that the church is a building when it isn't. The word means a community. It means a gathering. It means a group of people. It means a meeting. In the community of faith, we do relationships differently than the world does. What does Paul say to Philemon, verse 9? I appeal to you on the basis of love, Philemon. So I could pull rank on you. I could tell you I'm an apostle of Christ himself. You came to faith because of me, Philemon, when I was in Colossae. Uh, but I'm not going to pull rank on you. I'm not going to pull out the reverend card and say, thus saith the apostle Paul, you must take this man back. I appeal to you, Philemon, on the basis of love. Because in the community of faith, we are supposed to love one another. Jesus himself said that the world will know that we are his followers by our love for one another. The highest definition of love in the New Testament is this word agape. You've probably heard it before. It means to seek the highest good for somebody else. And Paul is saying, I appeal to you on that basis. You, you are a, a, a brother in Christ. He is a brother in Christ. And you need to take this man back. I'm appealing to you on the basis of love. We are supposed to do relationships differently. Now, some of you have had painful experiences in, in the church life. You've been wrong. You've been hurt. You've been... Whatever has happened to you, it's been extremely painful. Painful. 
Um, and so sometimes people, when they go through that kind of experience, they become what I call de-churched. And that means that they're not, they don't like church anymore because to them, oh, the church is filled with hypocrites. And uh, they're not hypocrites, apparently. Everybody else is a hypocrite, right? But uh, they become de-churched. Uh, can I just tell you, if you're in this room and you're de-churched, wow, I'm so happy that you're here. This is, if this is a church filled with de-churched people, I'm all for that. I always say, if you're de-church, post-church, non-church, or anti-church, you found your church. This is a good church for you. Non-church, de-church, post-church, or anti-church. So the de-church people, the, oh yeah, I've been through that. I know that. I don't want no part of that. Good, I'm glad you're here. Uh, and can I just tell you, every single one of you in this room, including me, we are all filled with hypocrisy. Yes, the church is full of hypocrites. And you are one. And I am one as well. That may sound a little shocking, but when you look into the pages of Scripture, you will see all of us are tainted with our moments of hypocrisy. But in the community of faith, we're to do relationships differently than the world. We are to forgive one another. We are to be kind and compassionate to one another. So Paul says, I'm going to appeal to you, Philemon, on the basis of love which you are supposed to have tasted of, which we have tasted of, because in the community of faith, observation number two, we have a bond that transcends society, it transcends politics, it transcends culture, it transcends ethnicity, it transcends all of these things. I love looking out on the, 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 the crowd every Saturday morning, small or large, because you're all from different places. This is like so multicultural, this church. It's not uncommon for churches in Quebec to be multicultural. But this one is so multicultural, like there's probably 25 countries in this room. Literally, it's probably 25 different countries represented in this room. But there is a bond that we have that transcends that. It transcends politics. Uh, some of you like Donald Trump. Some of you don't, but you're in the same room. Some of you like Valérie Plante, and some of you like Denis Coderre, you know, and some of you like Trudeau, and some of you... It transcends politics, the bond that we have in Christ. It transcends cultural norms. Here you have slavery common across the Roman Empire. The most common designation, the most common class for a person was to be a slave. This is why Jesus is referred to that way, because it was the most common. He came as a servant. The word there is slave uh, in Philippians chapter 2, which Paul himself writes. So he says to this man Philemon in verse 7, uh, for example, he says, I appeal to you on the basis of love. I'm sorry, um, that's verse yeah, verse 7, your, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, so Philemon is a brother in Christ. You, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints, and I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. It's not his biological son. He's referring to his spiritual son because he has influenced this man to a degree that he has become a Christian under his watch. So Paul really he has two spiritual sons here. He's got Philemon, and he's got Onesimus. He's got both of them. Uh, just a question for you. 
Have you got any spiritual sons or daughters? Just a question. Is anyone in the kingdom because of you? And even a more direct question, are you a son or daughter of God himself? And are you sure of that? And do you know that? Well, Paul was very certain about this. Paul is a, a Jewish rabbi uh, in the context of Rome. He's a religious guy. He's in prison in Rome because of a big, a big fight that started in Jerusalem uh, where Paul appealed on the basis of his Roman citizenship. He wants to go to Rome. He wants to testify in front of the emperor. He wants to talk about Jesus to the emperor himself. Uh, so that's who Paul is. You know, he's a preacher. He's a church planter. Um, Onesimus is a runaway slave. Uh, Philemon is his owner. You've got societal, cultural, political. It's a mess. But the bond that we have in the community of faith transcends all of this. And um, Paul recognizes this, and, and he's, he's putting a, a highlight on this for uh, Philemon. Uh, point number three, in the, in the community of faith, we see the work of redemption in people. We see the work of redemption. What do I mean? And in this, in this series, you're going to learn words like redemption and forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation and all these kinds of terms you're going to learn because we're going to look at relationships using three different stories. Here, we see Paul using this idea of redemption. A redemption means to be bought back. It means to restore value to something when you redeem it, or to someone. And you see Paul say there in verse 11, very clever use of language. He says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Does anybody here speak Greek? Anybody at all? Okay, you have to speak Greek to know the pun that he's using. The, the name Onesimus meant useful. It meant useful was another way of saying it. So Paul, he's, he's, it's a little play on words. He's saying, formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful. He's, he's been redeemed, is what Paul is saying. And if Paul sees the redemptive work of God in this man. He's living up to his name in a sense, because of the work of God in his life. And that's what we're supposed to see in people. Even people who are not Christian people, we've got to see the potential that they could be if God were working in their life. You know, there's an old saying, you look at the glass half full or you look at the glass half empty. Usually, you know, our tendency is to look at the glass half empty, right? Well, Paul is saying you need to look at the glass half full in people's lives. You need to see the work of God and the redemptive purpose of God in people's life. Even if the person is a scoundrel, the potential, what God could do in that person's life. If you're looking across the dinner table this Christmas at somebody you don't like, think about what God could do in that person's life. Maybe it'll help you like them just a little bit and get along with them just a little bit more. We see the, the work of redemption uh, in people. I want to show you an example of this. I came across this story. Someone in our church uh, on their Facebook page 
had, had shared this video, and I was stunned at how it, it aligned with the message of today. And so I want to show it to you. This is a video that's got around 12 million views. Um, it is the story of a woman who some 25 years ago was shot in the face uh, by a young man. And what happened after that experience, it took many, many years. But I want you to see this story and see an example of the kind of thing we see in the book of Philemon. Go ahead. I see these, these three guys walk up to the car, and I wasn't really paying attention to them. One of them asked, you got any change? I had built up a reputation in the neighborhood as someone who was fearless. It didn't matter that I was the youngest. Uh, I was given the gun. I heard from behind, I'm serious, give it up. And Debbie immediately screamed. I immediately fired. He shot. I saw one of my teeth fall on the ground. I threw the gun in some bushes and went back to the neighborhood. My front tooth was gone. All the teeth on the, on the bottom left side, all of them were gone. Then I found out who it was. They said, Ian Manuel, 13. I'm like, 13? There's no way a 13-year-old kid shot me. He's just a child. My lawyer at the time, he goes and gets my mom. He talks to my mom for about 15 minutes. My mom's older than me. My mom's been in prison before. She's dealt with the criminal justice system before. She tells me, Ian, do what your lawyer says. Children. And when the court ruled that 
it is unconstitutional to impose these kinds of sentences on children convicted of non-homicide. We went back to the court where Ian's case was pending. We said, you have to give him a week. And Debbie came to court, and she said she doesn't believe that this sentence was fair or just, and she supports him being released from jail and prison. I told the judge, me and Debbie have been waiting for years for the judicial system to catch up to my remorse and her forgiveness. I was released that night. It's really hard um, to step out into the world, particularly now when you're coming out as an adult, but you left the world as a child. You look like an adult, but you have none of the life experiences that adults are supposed to have. Ian has never lived alone before. He's never uh, rented anything. He's never had a bank account. He's never learned to drive. He doesn't know any of the things that people assume he knows. They put, put on a break in the but having some outside people who are cheering for him, rooting for him, has obviously made a huge impact. And nobody has played that role more enthusiastically, more lovingly, and uh, with more commitment than that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I see Ian for who he is. He still has a lot of growing to do. And I don't glorify him, but our relationship is spans so many years from childhood to adulthood that he's almost like my child. I'm not saying he wasn't responsible for his actions, but when you're 13, you should be given the opportunity to change, to grow. What I feel is what a remarkable story that is. And I, I don't know if these are Christian people or not, uh, but there's a reason why this thing got 12 million views, and I looked it up for, to see if it was real. You know, sometimes things on the Internet, you're not sure. And sure enough, it's real. She was shot in the face in 1990. And it's the story of the woman who forgave the person who shot her. And she's like a mother to him. Uh, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. The reason why it's viewed so many times is because it's so uncommon, so uncommon that people would behave that way. Uh, but it has echoes and pieces and parts of the story of the runaway slave and his master Philemon, and the one who put, put them back together, uh, the Apostle Paul. Uh, in the community of faith, uh, we see the work of redemption in people. And finally, uh, in the community of faith, we practice grace. We practice grace, and we practice restitution. Restitution is an old word. We don't really use that word anymore, unfortunately. Restitution means you pay back what you owe. Sometimes you pay back more then what you owe, you make restitution for what you did wrong. You see, in, in, in Christ, it's not, well, you know, you forgive the person and that's it. There's no consequence. No, that's not true. Uh, people who have that, that idea, it's a misconception. You know, so, so one person does, another, does something wrong to somebody else, and they say, well, you're supposed to forgive me. You're the Christian. So why haven't you forgiven me, Right? And they say, well, you're supposed to, that's what Christians do. Uh, yes, but Christians also understand the, the point of restitution. 
if he owes, if he has done anything wrong, or he owes you anything, you charge it to me, the Apostle Paul says. I will pay it back. I will make restitution for this man's wrong. It's not just forgive and that's it. Boys will be boys, girls will be girls, and let's just forgive, forgive, forgive. On what basis do we forgive? There's consequence. There's consequence for sin. There's consequence for transgression. And when you're a Christian, it doesn't mean you ignore those consequences. Uh, you do impose the consequences, but you also are quick to distribute forgiveness and grace. Grace means you're giving somebody something that they didn't earn. The word for grace is the word gift. Uh, we get the word charity from this word. So word charis in Greek. So we, we're giving somebody something that they didn't earn, that they don't deserve. So forgiveness is something you give, but consequence is a reality. Let no one kid you into thinking that there should be no consequence for sin. There should. Paul acknowledges it, and he says, I will pay back what this man stole. He probably stole something, otherwise he wouldn't have run. Uh, but he ran into, of all people, uh, the apostle Paul. Even with God himself, God extends his grace. God extends his forgiveness to you and to me. But on what basis? On the basis of? Jesus and the cross, right? So it's not that God just says, I forgive you. No, God forgives on the basis of the work of Jesus on the cross and no other basis. That's the basis by which he forgives us. Without the cross of Christ, there is no forgiveness of sin for us, friends. That's why it's such an important thing for us. Um, it's not like the Muslim God. Uh, the Muslim God uh, forgives and the idea of atonement for, for sin is offensive in, in Islam. Joe's isn't in the room, but Joe's will tell you that. Uh, and if you argue with a Muslim, they'll say, oh, your God requires death to, to be paid for sin? Oh, our God doesn't require that at all. He just forgives. <laughs> well, if God is holy, God is going to demand the ultimate punishment and the ultimate consequence for sin, and that's death itself. And this is why we worship Jesus, because he took our place as our substitute on that cross. Do you understand? So when we receive that, we're supposed to be giving that to people because we have received something that we totally, totally could not earn and never will deserve. It's a gift, but it's a gift on the basis of the shed blood of Christ. So be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. You'll hear that again and again for the next two weeks. Uh, next week, we're going to look at it in a story that Jesus told, very vivid, vivid story that illustrates this beautifully. We've run on on time a little bit, so I'm going to give the band a break and give the teardown team a little bit more time to do their job. Would you stand with me? I want to pray for you before we...